again, this is podcast number 14 for English 264 Online. In this episode, we'll talk about Gerard Manley Hopkins and Thomas Hardy, two poets who in many ways shaped the directions of poetry for the 20th century and formed a transition from Victorian styles to modern styles. Hopkins and Hardy had some qualities in common, although they differed in quite a few others. They both had strong graphic sensibilities, both trained as graphic artists, both had very strong, although opposite, religious views. Both were interested in the crucial cosmic meaning contained in small things, and both stretched and strained the English language to try to find new voices for poetry. Gerard Manley Hopkins, like Oscar Wilde in the previous podcast, lived his entire life during the reign of Queen Victoria. He was born in 1844 and only lived to 1889. He intended to be a painter, but the major focus of his life changed at college when he converted to Roman Catholicism at the age of 22 in 1866. Not only did Hopkins convert to Catholicism, which was a shocking step that caused much hard feelings among his family, but he also trained for the priesthood, and not only that, but trained to be a Jesuit priest, um, a very extreme step for an Englishman at that time. His family had been Protestant for, for generations. Upon that step towards uh, becoming a priest, he burnt all his early poems, of which, as far as I know, none remain, as being too worldly and out of step with his new direction, his new vocation in life. Um, As a priest, he taught classes at the University College in Dublin. He also helped in the community uh, and worked um, in many of the slums, both in England and in Ireland. And in fact, he died of typhoid at the age of 44, uh, a disease that he had contracted as part of his social work. Now, as I said, he gave up his poems upon his conversion, but he began to write them again when inspired by a disaster that had occurred in December of 1875. Five Catholic nuns fleeing anti-Catholic persecution from Germany were on board a ship called the Deutschland, which foundered in a North Atlantic storm in that in terrible weather. Um, 150-some members of the crew died, including the five nuns. And to commemorate their bravery in the face of the adversity, their rallying of the people on board the ship, Hopkins offered to write a a poem commemorating them. And his superior in the church agreed, and he produced um, The Wreck of the Deutschland, which was his first poem in his new system, his new style, which is typical of of the style that we see. Uh, It was not received particularly favorably, um, like most of his poems, he was not able to publish it during his lifetime because his poems were just too different from what people had expected poetry to be. He had worked out an entirely new system, but the world was not quite ready for it. If you look in your anthology, you'll notice the distance between the composition date on the left-hand side under the poem and the publication date. It was not until 1918, long after his death, that most of his poems were published. Uh, His friend Robert Bridges from Oxford collected them and was able to get them an audience, and by that point a particularly receptive audience, as at the end of World War I, 20th century poets looking for new guidelines, for new directions, a new voice to to follow as opposed to the old Victorian voice of, of Tennyson in particular, and Hopkins became tremendously popular, much more so than he had ever been during his lifetime. I'd like to look at a few of his poems and talk about them, uh, talk about how to read them, how they're constructed, about his poetic principles. God's Grandeur is the first in our book, and it's a a wonderful example of his approach to the sonnet 
uh, in a new style, um, his merging of, of a very old and traditional lyrical form in the sonnet, um, which traditionally has 14 lines arranged in a particular order, uh, an iambic pentameter. He brings to it a different sense of meter, as opposed to the old uh, iambic pentameter, uh, five, 10 syllables in the alternating unstressed, stressed pattern. Um, he uses what he refers to as sprung rhythm, with an indeterminate number of syllables in a line, but with a set number of beats. In this poem, a spiritual exercise celebrating God's creation and protection of the world, goes like this. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. It gathers to a greatness like the ooze of oil crushed. Why do men then now not wreck his rod? Generations have trod, have trod, have trod, and all is seared with trade, bleared, smeared with toil, and wears man's smudge and shares man's smell. The soil is bare now, nor can foot feel being shod. And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things, and though the last lights off the black west went, oh, morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the bent world broods with warm breast and with, ah, bright wings. There are several elements to note here. One is, like a traditional Italian sonnet, this poem has construction of an octave and a sestet, the first eight lines which set up the situation, set up the problem, in this case, it's the um, what man has made of nature, uh, man's um, smearing and blurring, man's distance from nature, his uh, lack of connection to the natural world around him, his lack of appreciation for it, his pollution of the world. And then uh, the sextet, the last six lines, which set up the answer to that problem, and that is God, that every morning the sun rises again, uh, God protection uh, through the Holy Spirit over the world, um, brings rebirth and renewal um, and maintains a sense of hope in this world. As a priest, Hopkins justified his writing of poetry as a spiritual or religious exercise both for him and for the reader. That should be overtly clear from the message of this poem, um, that God's grandeur is the answer to the problem of, of what man does in the world. But it's, it's true not just of the, the overt message, but also of the, of the structure, of the way the poem is written. He thought the more difficult the exercise, the greater the spiritual benefit. Um, so rather than using Wordsworth's idea that poetry should be like the everyday current language, um, that the poet should be a man speaking to men in, in the language really used by men, Hopkins thought, Quote, the poetical language of an age should be the current language heightened, to any degree heightened and unlike itself. And so he tends to use very concentrated syntax for abrupt communication, uses lots of sound effect techniques, uh, internal rhymes and alliteration, consonants and assonance. Note, for example, in the last line of the poem, the repetition of sounds, world broods, warm breast, bright wings, so the W and the BR sound, which are, uh, which are repeated in a pattern. Or notice um, man's smudge, man's smell. Um, again, lots of repetition of, of alliterative sounds there. And you can also see alliteration at work in a pattern form in the first line of As Kingfishers Catch Fire on page 777. Here he's using a, a Welsh alliterative pattern called King Hanid, which uses alternating patterns. Um, As Kingfishers Catch Fire, Dragonflies Draw Flame. 
to alternate the K and F and then the DR and FL sounds. Everything in poetry, every technique in poetry has a name. Um, it's just a matter of finding it. And poets are perhaps more than any other writers, more conscious and more um, intentionally working in terms of sound and sense together. And as kingfishers catch fire, you can also observe one of the poetical techniques most often associated with Hopkins. In fact, it has a term that he invented himself, Enscape. And I like to read the poem and then talk about how it works. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame, as tumbled over rim and roundy wells, stones ring, like each touch string tells, each hung bell's bow swung finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same, selves, goes itself, myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I say more, the just man justices, keeps grace, that keeps all his goings graces, acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is, Christ. For Christ plays in ten thousand places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his, to the Father through the features of men's faces. Inscape, a term that Hopkins created, refers to the internal landscape of an object, its internal characteristics, its um, essential nature, which he sees as being uh, what distinguishes it from every other object in the world, and as being something of its personal identity put there specifically for it by God. Um, it's the individually distinctive beauty, the, the whatness of a thing, suddenly apprehended by the viewer like with an electric shock, the divine, and in fact it is related to the divine spark in all objects. And the process which he, he refers to as the uh, observation of this inscape, he also calls instress. Um, in some ways you can think of it as the almost an electrical connection, uh, tension between one object and another which draws them together until that spark can make the leap from one to the other. And this poem is all about those sparks and that sound and that nature. Uh, the first line, as kingfishers catch fire. Uh, a kingfisher is a type of fish-eating hawk, which, it, which is not particularly flammable, as far as I know, uh, but that doesn't refer to actually catching fire, but to the iridescent nature of its wings, uh, uh, the, the blue feathers on it, which catch the light from the sun off of the pond as it dives down to catch the fish. Similarly, uh, dragonflies have an iridescent light in their scales and their wings as they fly by you they catch the sunlight and they draw the flame from the sun to them and then draw it to your eyes as well and it's he also uses the metaphors of sounds as, as well as, as a visual marker uh, when you drop a, a rock in a well it makes a particular note when you ring a bell it resonates at a particular frequency when you pluck the string on a violin it makes a, a particular note and he says, each mortal thing does one thing and the same reveal itself, itself. It can be nothing other than what it is, and in fact, that's all it is. And it is for its nature, it is for, it exists to proclaim its nature uh, as spiritual lessons for the, for the careful observer, like Hopkins. Note that Hopkins extends this inner nature, this inscape, not just to the external world, not just to nature, but inside humans as well. The just man justices, um, because that's what he is. He, he reveals himself, and I suppose you could see him, uh, the tree bears the fruit that reveal, reveals its nature. Uh, apple trees don't have pears on them. Uh, and 
he acts in God's eye what in God's eye he is. Um, and the, the moral lesson is, for Christ plays in 10,000 places, lovely in limbs and lovely in eyes, not his to the Father through the features of men's faces. You might think of this as a, almost a Blakeian view of um, the divine spark of God revealing himself in human nature, if seeing the infinite by looking at the finite surfaces. You can see the same inscape at work in Pied Beauty, where he finds a particular loveliness, a particular beauty in dappled and spotted and speckled things, uh, in trout, in even the homely cow, the particular black and white pattern on that individual cow marks it as being designed by God. And once again, the message in this celebratory poem is uh, God as designer. He fathers forth whose beauty is past change. Praise him. It's not celebrating the diversity in nature because nature is diverse. It celebrates the diversity in nature for a specific Christianized message. Now, Hopkins would be perhaps a less interesting poet if he only had these earlier works. But he also has the so-called terrible sonnets, products of his later life, when he became um, concerned about his lack of progress in the church, about his lack of reception as a poet, uh, wondered about his turn in, in life, and the result are poems like uh, Carry and Comfort, or No Worst There Is None. These poems also show a further development of his approach to poetry. Uh, Carry and Comfort, for instance, on page 777, directly after As Kingfishers Catch Fire, although note it was written some three or four years later, is to some extent still a sonnet. It still has 14 lines, um, but rather than the, the 10 metrical syllables that you would normally find in an iambic pentameter line, you have much, much longer lines, especially in the, the last six-line section of the poem, so that, um, for instance, the, the last two lines... Um, me or me that fought him, oh, which one? Is it each one that night, that year of now-done darkness? I, wretch, lay wrestling with my God, my God. You have on one line, on the last line, 16 syllables. In the penultimate line, 18 syllables, almost twice as long as a standard sonnet length line. And so it raises the question, of course, is this still a sonnet? Of what elements of a sonnet do you need to have? Line, a number of lines rhythmic pattern, um, rhyme scheme, that make it a sonnet, and which ones can you alter? And it is the two types of poems that he writes, the um, uplifting spiritual message of hope and, and faith, and also the wrestling with the dark night of the soul in the spiritual crisis poems, that together make him a, a fascinating character, a fascinating author, um, and his themes, uh, his his interpretation of nature, which in some ways is relevant to Wordsworth or to the modern ecological movement, and also to religious doctrine, connected with his very deep commitment to faith, but his, his problems in his in keeping his faith um, optimistic, um, again, make him a fascinating poet to study. Discussion now to Thomas Hardy, our second poet for the day. Unlike Hopkins, who died young, and, and let me say, 44, while it may not seem young to you, now that I've turned 45, seems very young indeed to me, Hardy did not die young. In fact, he lived exactly twice as long as Hopkins. Hardy died at the age of 88, having had two 30-year careers, 30 years as a novelist, in which he wrote 14 novels, 
and then 30 years as a poet, in which he wrote over a thousand poems. Hardy is usually identified with southwest England, um, so-called Hardy country, or, or Wessex, which he wrote most of his novels in, although he changed the, the names of towns and places, but he based them on sites that he was well familiar with. He trained to be a, an architect uh, and became mostly involved with renovating churches, a somewhat ironic vocation for him given his lack of religious faith. He generally would like to have had a strong faith, but he could not maintain it based on his perception of the world and, and his, his life experiences and his understanding of religion. His general take on life and the universe was that the universe is uncaring, that there's an irreconcilable disparity between the way things ought to be and the way they are, and he's generally pessimistic in his works. Humans have feelings but no power, the universe has power but no feelings, humans are imperfect, and the universe, while perfect, is inhuman and really cares very little about humans. And throughout much of his novels, there's a general sense of doom uh, gathering for the characters. In The Woodlanders, one of his novels, the character says, there is no bad without a worse. And that pretty much sums up Hardy's novels. Um, if things are, when the situation looks bad, it can always get worse, and in fact, it, it usually does. I selected the supplemental text on the Western Circuit as an example of Hardy's prose work. Uh, it was published first in 1891 in a magazine and then collected later with others of his stories in a volume entitled Life's Little Ironies, um, a perfect title for, for almost all of Hardy's prose because he is particularly fascinated with ironies of place and character and behavior. Towards the beginning of the story, on the first page, you have Charles Bradford Ray, a lawyer from London, here in, in the southwestern part of England, uh, at first looking as a tourist at the cathedral, later bored with that, turning to watch a, a local fair. And the narrator describes the uh, carousels and, and the other um, activity of the people at the fair. Hardy writes, The spectacle was that of the eighth chasm of the inferno as to color and flame, and as to mirth, a development of the Homeric heaven. A smoky glare of the complexion of brass filings ascended from the fiery tongues of innumerable naphtha lamps affixed to booths, stalls, and other temporary erections which crowded the spacious market square. In front of this irradiation, scores of human figures, more or less in profile, were darting athwart and across, up, down, and around like gnats against a sunset. Their motions were so rhythmical that they seemed to be moved by machinery, and it presently appeared that they were moved by machinery indeed. This, uh, this description of the people at the fair, both as human gnats and as moved by machinery, are important because they tend to objectify and belittle the people. If, if they are gnats, then Hardy is the entomologist who is studying them, and to some extent who is investigating the machinery and how machinery works both to move and eventually to crush the characters involved in this story. On the next page, the narrator continues the description after having spent some time focusing on the flirtation of Charles Bradford Ray and Anna, a young lower-class girl working as a servant for Edith Harnham, whom he had just met and whom he has been watching on the merry-go-round, on the carousel. And he pays for her second ride and third. And he write, and the narrator describes, Then the pleasure machine started again, and to the light-hearted girl, the figure of the handsome young man, the market square with its lights and crowd, 
The houses beyond and the world at large began moving round as before, counter-moving in the revolving mirrors on her right hand, she being, as it were, the fixed point in an undulating, dazzling, lurid universe in which loomed forward most prominently of all the form of her late interlocutor. Each time that she approached the half of her orbit that lay nearest him, they gazed at, e gazed at each other with smiles, and with that unmistakable expression which means so little at the moment, yet so often leads up to passion, heartache, union, disunion, devotion, overpopulation, drudgery, content, resignation, despair. In this last sentence we are given the life cycle of the human gnat, as depicted by Hardy. And it's a fascinating conclusion to that paragraph which the reader, um, perhaps a more naive reader not familiar with Hardy, would have perhaps expected to have ended in love, uh, that that's what this was leading up to. And that may be it, it, uh, love of the sort, but the depiction of love and its consequences, uh, not what we would refer to today as romantic. Ironies abound in this story, as Edith writes Anna's letters for her that she cannot write herself, uh, particularly after she becomes pregnant and tries to secure Charles Bradford Ray's love, which she does do, although, as it turns out, the love is not for Anna herself, but for Edith and, and her mind and her emotions. And at the end of the story, we have Charles Bradford Ray married to Anna unhappily. Uh, we have Edith married unhappily to her husband, and Edith and Charles, who perhaps might have been happy together, trapped in their separate traps and going their separate ways. Although, as, as Charles says, perhaps they deserve what they get, and that's up to the reader, perhaps, to decide. By the middle of the 1890s, however, Hardy's ironies were not receiving popular approval. They were not what the public wanted, particularly the novel and story-reading public. Um, his last few novels, Test of the D'Urbervilles and Jude the Obscure, were both attacked for their subject matter, for his treatment of the values of the reader, uh, the Victorian age. And so after Jude the Obscure, which had been branded as Jude the Obscene by critics, he stopped writing novels and turned to poetry. The typical Hardy poem has reminiscence of some past, some lost experience, the speaker meditates on the loss, surrounded by ghosts of what he once loved or had, had hoped for. Um, but, unlike perhaps how some poets might handle this theme, the speaker does not regain the past. He's not consoled. Um, unlike, say, Dorothy Wordsworth on her sickbed, memory does not provide the answer and consolation that he hoped for. Memory only deepens the sense of loss, the past heat versus the present chill. A terrific example of this sort of poem is on page 1078, Logs on the Hearth, A Memory of a Sister. The situation here is Hardy, uh, at the time he wrote this in 1915, 75 years old, is burning wood from an apple tree that has died from his yard, and as the tree burns, it conjures up memories of the tree when it was alive, and Hardy and his sister, when they were children, climbing that tree. His sister had died the year he wrote this poem. The fire advances along the log of the tree we felled, which bloomed and bore striped apples by the peck till its last hour of bearing knelled. The fork that first my hand would reach, and then my foot in climbings upward inch by inch, lies now sawn, sapless, darkening with soot, where the bark chars is where one year it was pruned and bled, then overgrew the wound. But now at last its growings all have stagnated. 
My fellow climber rises dim from her chilly grave, just as she was, her foot near mine on the bending limb, laughing her young brown hand a wave. There are several things to observe in this poem. One is the uh, the pattern of the stanzas, uh, the, the length of the lines, the construction of the lines, the rhyme scheme. Hardy was a constant tinkerer and innovator with poetry. He almost never used the same poetic structure twice in any of his poems. He loved to see um, what, he could, what he could do with a particular format and also what a particular format would require him to do, uh, how setting up a structure of a poem affected the content. And in this case, um, if a poem is, as one critic has argued, a machine for recreating emotion, you have a very interesting and uh, complicated set of emotions here in that he's both um, thinking of the tree in the past, the tree is keeping, his, keeping him warm even though it's a bittersweet warmth, um, he's happy thinking of playing with his sister at the same time that he's thinking now of her death, um, and so you have his memories of his childhood as uh, in contrast with his present age. At the end, the, the ghost of his sister waving to him, beckoning him on toward uh, with her towards death, or waving at him from the past, from memory, is not really clear. And so and what Hardy does is explore how the situation and memories work together to create a certain effect, uh, a certain experience. Unlike Tennyson, whom Hardy in part distrusted, um, he thought that Tennyson's verse was so beautiful that it distracted the reader from any sense of reality, from any sense of, of uh, contact with what was going on. Hardy tends to use very spare words, very prosaic constructions, uh, in some ways following Wordsworth's idea of what poetry ought to do, as far as not being all that different from prose. Uh, he thought it important not to write poetry too well or too smoothly, too prettily, he thought it, you would lose something of the actual experience in, in doing it that way. His, his approach to poetry is entirely different from Hopkins in the sense that Hopkins wants to pack every line with as many complications of syntax as possible. Uh, Hardy, on the other hand, uh, tends to remove any complications, tends to make things as compressed and as apparently simple as possible, Al although certainly that should not be confused for simplicity or for um, simplistic nature. Uh, there's lots going on in his poetry, um, and the more you read it and the more you think about it, the deeper you go with it and the more you'll discover it. I'd like to end with The Convergence of the Twain, lines, as the subtitle points out, on the loss of the Titanic. So in 1912, the year that the Titanic sank when it hit the iceberg in the North Atlantic, he wrote this poem to commemorate the event, although not in a way that the casual reader or viewer of the movie Titanic would perhaps expect. One might expect a poem about the Titanic would have celebrated the people on board the ship, would have commemorated the human tragedy, the, the deeds of heroism, men giving up their spots in the lifeboats, or the, the band playing Nearer My God to Thee as the ship goes down. Uh, it might have celebrated the glory of the ship before the crash. None of that appears in this poem. In fact, it begins with the boat at the bottom of the ocean. In a solitude of the sea, deep from human vanity, in the pride of life that planned her, stilly couches she. Steel chambers late the pyres of her salamandrian fires, cold currents thrid and turn to rhythmic tidal lyres. 
Over the mirrors meant to glass the opulent, the sea worm crawls, grotesque, slimed, dumb, indifferent. Jewels enjoy design to ravish the sensuous mind, lie lightless, all their sparkles bleared and black and blind. Dim moon-eyed fishes near gaze at the gilded gear and query, what does this vaingloriousness down here? Well, while was fashioning this creature of cleaving wing, the imminent will that stirs and urges everything prepared a sinister mate for her so gaily great, a shape of ice, for the time, far and dissociate. And as the smart ship grew in stature, grace, and hue, in shadowy silent distance grew the iceberg, too, Alien they seemed to be, no mortal eye could see the intimate welding of their later history, or sign that they were bent by paths coincident on being anon twin halves of one august event, till the spinner of the years said now, and each one hears, and consummation comes and jars two hemispheres. This poem is all about two halves coming together, uh, whether that's two hemispheres joining together into one sphere, whether it's two halves of one august event, whether it's the, the Titanic and the iceberg, two halves of one whole made for each other, although nobody knew that, nobody could foresee that. Um, even the structure of the poem consists of two halves, the first, the fish asking the question, the second, the answer. Even every stanza consists of two half lines and then one, one third line, which is as equal, equal in length to the previous half lines. Um, every Every stanza has the rhyme scheme of A-A-A, so it's a very insistent pattern building towards the final image of the two hemispheres coming together in consummation. It's both a marriage and uh, a catastrophe. And the point of it is to be a lesson to human vanity, is to be a lesson to the pride of life that created what was claimed to be the unsinkable ship that sank on its maiden voyage. It is a very peculiar approach to the, to the topic of the Titanic uh, and very typical of Hardy in the sense that it was not an accident, it was a planned event, it was destiny, it was doom. Uh, it is a lesson to us if we care to pay attention to it. There are forces at work which structure our lives, but they are not comforting forces. They are not kind or benevolent leaders or, or gods looking after us. They are agents of destiny uh, and agents of irony. In your discussions, you might compare and contrast Hopkins and Hardy and their approaches to poetry, or perhaps you might contrast how these two poets differ from the poets that we've been looking at, from uh, the, the subject matter, the construction of the poems, the voice that you hear the poets uh, creating in, in the lines. I look forward to seeing what you have to say in your blogs and discussions. Next time, we will return to drama with George Bernard Shaw's Pygmalion. Um, which you should be somewhat familiar with if you've ever seen an adaptation of My Fair Lady, which is based on this play. Until then, thank you and goodbye.